0: I'm ready.
1: Phil was always ready. All right. All right. And we are joined by Sonia Labasco, who is the, uh, she's on the council for the air marshals. Is that correct? Tell me how you say that.
2: Air Marshal National Council.
1: She's the National Counsel for the Air Marshals. Uh, a lot of people do not know this, but the Federal Air Marshals are a different service than the U.S. Marshals. I get this all the time on Twitter, and it's like, no, no, no. These are different people altogether. Totally different skill set.
2: That is that is correct, Kyle. We're completely different. Um, you know, The U.S. Marshals is part of the Department of Justice. We are unfortunately part of TSA. We're the little <laughs> law enforcement arm underneath 75,000 bureaucrats. You've got that little couple of couple of thousand of us up there trying to make our way every day to do national security issues. It's not that easy.
1: And and a really important job too. People I've worked with in that organization were great. I want to uh, get kind of how you ended up where you are. We'll just do maybe the five minute recap on uh, the quick and dirty on your life. And that way people know who we're, we're talking to, you, but I think they already got a sense. They're going to get a kick out of what you have to say. Um, where did you grow up? What, what part of the country? I
2: grew up in a little town outside of uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, which was home of Elvis So um, I grew up, I'm going to date myself here, back in the 1967 was the day I came into this world kicking and screaming. Uh, I seem to still be kicking and screaming. I feel like I'm reborn every day. Um, Yes, ma'am. Since I started working in the government, I felt like I've been rebirthed each time I walk into the office. But I grew up in Mississippi. My father was a a welder. He was a hardworking guy. Transferred to Florida. um, Worked at Universal Studios on the uh, Fire and Ice roller coaster. And I kept paying such long-distance phone bills. I finally said, I'm just going to move to Florida. I don't know what I'm going to do there when I get there, but I'm going to relocate. So I moved uh, to Florida in like 1988. Mm-hmm. saw an ad in the local newspaper for a law enforcement academy for $599. I think I had about 602 bucks in my account at the time. So I paid for the uh, law enforcement academy and I had $2 to spare. And the rest is history. I went through the academy, got picked up with Daytona Beach Police Department in 1990, worked my way up through the rank, um, through there to the rank of sergeant, uh, past positions were hostage negotiator, the amount patrol unit, uh, deputy patrol commander on midnight shifts. So had a plethora of experience from Daytona PD um, before I came over to the air marshals. Um, I I came over with the air marshals in uh, June of 2002. I was actually hired in February of 2002 Uh, Coming home from a midnight shift on the morning of September the 11th, I was held over for a couple of hours for paperwork that morning. One of my guys had gotten a DUI arrest and of course as a sergeant I had to wait and review all the paperwork uh, before we could end our shift. So I came home, flicked the TV on for a few minutes before I tried to get some sleep and saw the first plane hit the tower and was just stunned in my living room like most people that were watching. um, Tried to make some sense of it. Did the pilot have a medical issue, was there a heart attack, Um, you know, just trying to be what a reasonable person would say, how could that have happened? But then I thought, well, there's a co-pilot. So if that happened to the pilot, maybe something, you know, what happened to the co-pilot? Then I'm thinking, well, maybe they got aerotoxic syndrome, maybe something was bad in the cabin, maybe they were asleep. And then by that time, we know the second plane hit the tower. And I knew immediately we were under attack. I knew immediately um, it was going to be bad for us. It was a very bad day in America.
1: No doubt about it. Uh, take people back a little bit too about what that felt like. You were a law enforcement officer at the time. You were a local PD, obviously. And and you're looking at that. Did you did that inspire you to, to go to the air marshals? Or was that something you were already thinking about?
2: It, it, it wasn't within maybe less than 12 hours. I was calling the chief of police and I was putting a team together to go to New York that we were heading up to Linda Helpingham because I just felt it was something I had to go. I had to go and do. Seeing us attack that way in our own backyard I was like, there's no way that this is going to be all right. And whoever did it, I'm damn well coming to get them.
1: Yeah, that's the, I think that was the attitude. A lot of people had, you got a lot of enlistments out of that. You got a lot of people that joined the federal service and the law enforcement. uh, And um, how did you end up deciding that air marshals was the route that you were going to go? And, uh, and, you know, was there any particular skill set that they were trying to hire for at that time or not
2: really? I mean, after nine 11, I mean, the esprit de corps within our country, the way our, our country came together. Um, I don't think that there was any more of a patriotic duty that I could have done uh, to come and serve my country than to join the air marshals. We actually I was doing a midnight shift briefing and they did a bolo over the radio in regards to the air marshal service hiring, hiring folks. So we wrote down an 800 number. I briefed my guys and girls and I said, listen, if you want to go, I'm going. I don't know if you're going to go, but Sonya's going. I'm out of here. I'm going to be at Federal Air Marshal. And I'm going to get those guys and those bad guys that want to hurt our country. This is not going to happen again. Um, I Absolutely. called the 800 number. Couple couple of weeks later, I got an old uh, bubble style application where you fill out the circles. They, you know, you write it in and you fill out the circles. Got a phone. I mailed it back in. Got a phone call. Uh, they flew me up to Atlantic City, New Jersey, in February for an assessment. Uh, that was 2002. Um, about a week later, they called me and said you're hired. Uh, they were very gracious. Um, and let me stay uh, at Daytona for a couple more months because I was finishing up my last uh, course in college. So I was done with college at the 1st of June. And as soon as that was done, I shipped out to uh, Artesia, New Mexico.
1: Ooh, that's a rough place to be, having gone In the
2: middle of the- June, have you ever <laughs> run in a black flag? Of you know course. what a black flag means? You will die.
1: That is, yeah. No, I went through uh, all the basic training in San Antonio. And then uh, I was stationed in Las Cruces when I left the FBI. So I know a little bit about the heat there. Uh, it's, it's a different animal, right? When you start having to do real training, especially when you're in full clothing, it's different if you're in in just a pair of shorts. And uh,
2: let me tell you, we did a lot of real training and I I am just, I can't say enough about the training that we received through, um, the air Marshal program out at Fletzi and Artesia. It was top notch. They made me a phenomenal shooter. Let me tell you, we were putting 10,000 rounds downrange at any given time. So I was totally prepared when I graduated from Artesia. I was totally prepared to take on anything that had happened on an aircraft I was ready.
1: It's a real specific skill set. It's different than most law enforcement. Maybe you can kind of tell people what that specialized training looks like because you know they're thinking that you you have some police background and obviously you came from that so you understand the basics of constitutional law but you know the air marshal service is so specific about what they do. And I got a couple of days up in Dulles, as I told you uh, earlier that we we got to go and kind of train with them. So I just got a window into it but when it comes to taking back a plane there's a real science to it. I don't need you to give any of the, you know, the special tactics right. to it, but maybe some of the core skill sets.
2: Well, some of the, some of the core skill sets that, that we, you really have to have is, first of all, you have to be, you have to be absolutely sure of the decision that you're making. You cannot second guess anything. You've only got a couple of seconds to make the right decision. So if you're going to, to go forward and make a decision, you got to do it immediately, right? You got to make sure your teammates are on the same page. You have to do that within a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. So number one, you've got to be patient. You've got to be smart. And when you're ready to go, you've got to be quick. You've got to be sure. Um, You have to work well in a team. It's not a one person show. You've got teammates that you're up there working with. They need to be part of whatever decision that you're making to do that. And you, you honestly have to, you have to be ready to strap yourself into a 12,000 gallon bomb every day. When you're getting on an aircraft, I know people say, Hey, You're just flying. No, brother, we're sitting on a a weapon of mass destruction every day, trying to get that thing landed in one piece with everybody on board. So I looked at my job a lot differently, maybe than the American people look at what we do every day.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably. uh, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And then, so you've got kind of a range of catastrophes that can happen when you're midair. Obviously, you're in an enclosed space, uh, like being on a bus or anything else where you just can't get out. There's not an easy access to to shut it down or get access to any additional people other than who you brought. So What is the sort of the benign, you know, everyday uh, things that you get called out to do? And then, you know, worst case scenario, maybe we could run through the gamut, the spectrum of what the air marshals may handle on any given flight.
2: Man, it is a circus. Some days you'll get things that you can never imagine. Uh, I think one of the most, um, one of the craziest situations that happened in the air one time, and this is much lower level stuff, because, you know, every day it's not always actionable. Some days there's just things that go on. But uh, a lady accidentally let her cat out on an airplane once. Um, the cat got out of the cat container. And let me tell you, this cat did not want to be caught. He was jumping over seats. He was scratching people in the hair. He was running beneath your feet. He was up and down the aircraft. The flight attendants couldn't get catch him. They came to me and I was like, I am not animal control. I cannot help you. I am so sorry. You should get a blanket, maybe get a big blanket and try to wrangle him somewhere in the back. So from the monotonous like that to other situations to where you can absolutely tell that Somebody has some bad intent on an aircraft. It can can turn around really quick on you. So we go from, you know, somebody being upset because they didn't get their peanuts. They're going to raise hell. Um, They're going to cause a disruption. Maybe someone else upset because they don't get the seat that they wanted. They booked a flight or a trip with a family member. Maybe they're separated. Um, Husbands and wives that get in disputes when they're supposed to be going on vacation. You know, little things that happen in everyday life like that, all the way up until the fact that, you know, you may have to tell the, the pilot, we need to put the plane on the ground because something else is going on. That's not good.
1: And essentially when the air marshals go into action, at least this is the way I learned it and correct me if I'm wrong, but the minute that they decide that, uh, they're going to go over and basically blockade the cockpit and stop everything from happening. They tell the pilot in no uncertain terms, what they want to do. And the pilot obviously has final say, but is going to mostly defer to your judgment to put the plane down immediately to continue on course. But, uh, you know, not come out for any bathroom breaks, that kind of thing. Is that, is that That more
2: like once we deploy? I mean, once we're up, we're up, we're up for the entire flight. We're going to take control of that main cabin. Um, We will coordinate with the pilot. And of course we've never had a situation where they wouldn't put the plane down immediately. If they could get some, somewhere to land quickly, they would do that. So, and we, it's about working with a team with our flight crew as well. You know, we're all on the same team there. Our whole goal is to get the folks home safe at night. And the flight crew want to do that. We want to do that. And the pilots want to do that too. But yeah, Absolutely. once we're up, man, and redeployed, that's it. Nobody's coming forward. Nobody's moving. You're putting your seatbelt on and you might as well get comfortable because you're not getting up and you're not moving because we have to control that cabin. we can't have people up and moving around when we've been deployed because at that point, we don't know who the bad guys are.
1: Sure. Now, it probably goes without saying for people who are in this business, but maybe for folks who are listening to us that don't have a lot of background on it. You mentioned putting a lot of rounds downrange when you were in training, going through the flinty training and uh, ten thousand rounds. I'm assuming that's like ten grand a month. That's a lot of shooting. That's more than probably most other federal agencies do. What is that? Uh, you know, what is what is the training, the actual qualification look like for firearms? Because I know it's different than what uh, what other law enforcement does when they're used to walking around.
2: Yeah, well, we we have to shoot a score of three hundred, and, and that's your max score that you shoot. It could be three hundred. It's five dollars, uh, five points uh, per shot. But you shoot at the three yard line, the five yard line. You do your one armed hip shooting. You do one hand shooting. What we do, uh, we kneel at the seven yard line. We have barricades at the twenty five. So it's a variety of shot placement and different movements to where you, you know, you need to be able to control your gun. If you get injured and you you can only shoot with one arm, you've got to learn how to do that on, on during training. You can't wait till that happens in an aircraft or in an airport. You got to be able to you know shoot left hand right hand you have to be ambidextrous it's not just shooting with your your strong hand you have to learn to shoot with your weak hand you have to learn to load with your weak hand so everything you do is like it's like bilateral you have to know both sides of your body and and how to shoot with both hands
1: now do they give you preference if you want to if you're right-handed if you want to be on the left side of the aisle that sort of thing if you or they scatter you around for for visibility sake and and know that shooting is sort of a secondary yeah. move
2: it is going to be wherever they can get you in the aircraft. Of course, you know you'll have to adjust to that. If you're, you know, if you're a, you're a left hand shooter and you're sitting to the left, you know, you're going to have to adjust and and tactically make the best decision that you can. But uh, you know, we're we try to take the most advantageous seat on the flight on on the flight. But sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you're stuck somewhere where you're in a window seat and you can't really see the cockpit, or you're in a bulkhead where you know, you're at the window at the bulkhead that's not working so well for you to be able to see sight picture to the, to the, to the cockpit.
1: Sure. Fair enough. Um, one of the things I saw in some of the B roll footage that, uh, when you were on, uh, Dan Bongino's show is that they were shooting out of sort of seats and kind of like a modified fuselage going out into a target. Is that something you've, you've done training with?
2: I love that. That's called the tactical pistol course. It's the TPC. Okay. And that was, that's more real world shooting for us, you know, standing up on a range. It's one thing, you know, when we're shooting it for qualifying, it's a time to call. You don't really have uh, any pressure on you other than yourself putting pressure on you. When you're at the tactical pistol course, man, you're sitting in the seats, you're shooting around dummies heads. You're, you're more in your, your environment when you're doing that than just standing out on a range uh, qualifying. So I love the tactical pistol course. Of course, TSA took that away. It's a very difficult course to shoot, but Um, they were not getting the type of candidates that they wanted because you had to, to be able to be a good shooter. So they lowered the standard and took our tactical pistol course away, which I think it started falling apart when they did that.
1: When was that out of curiosity?
2: I want to say that was right around 2005, 2000, 2005 five-ish, two 2006. And I say it started falling apart because of the standard. It was, you don't lower your standard when you're working in a linear environment that way right? Your shot placements, everything. So you have to be a world-class shooter to do that job. Why, why lower your standard? Um, so you can get an applicant that you want hired versus one that can do the job.
1: Amen to that. Um, the two guys that I know that are uh, currently FBI, but were former federal air marshals were outstanding shooters and also just great teammates. So all the things that you're saying all ring true to my experience. And I know Phil knows both of those guys. And um, we have a lot of respect for where they came from. It's why I actually got to go sit in the, the fuselage and, and kind of get a taste of it. Um, uh, I've got a certificate somewhere in one of my little files. And so whenever they would mention that they were an air marshal, I would tell them I'm an air marshal too. And they'd go, what? And I go, look, I got the certificate here. It's a two day certificate. It's not quite the same thing, obviously, but, uh, it's, it's an interesting, and it's probably one of the most overlooked parts of federal law enforcement. I would say, um, what are some of the, the missions that people would not expect that exist that you know, obviously protecting the fuselages or protecting the, uh, the cockpit is a big piece of it. What are some of the other things or responsibilities that you all have as, uh, as fans?
2: We do a lot of surveillance at the airport, around the airport arena with inside the airport. And we'll, I know we'll get to the January 6th stuff, which has kind of changed a lot of the things that we're doing, but normally, uh, doing surveillance around the airport, looking for anything that's out, out of place. I mean, in 2008, I was here in Orlando assigned, um, as the airport liaison. And we actually had a, 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 suspect that came into the airport we picked him up within about 15 to 20 seconds that he was acting unusual he also had a long overcoat and it was middle of the summer so that was that really stood out um we watched him in the airport for a few minutes and we could tell that he was up to no good he came in over by um by the american counters at the bottom of the the airport level two and we watched him for a few minutes and we just knew something was hinky you know the guy was sweating really bad His mannerisms were off the charts. Uh, He kept looking at his watch, looking up at the board, looking at his watch. And we we followed him around the airport. I honestly, when he started headed toward the food court, I was looking for some type of active shooter. I thought he was going to pull something out from underneath his jacket. I thought he had a rifle or a shotgun. So my partner and I stayed on him. I called Orlando PD immediately because, you know, we're in plain clothes. We could have identified ourselves, but I wasn't sure what we had at that moment. We, we just weren't sure. I just knew something was not good. Orlando PD called uh, some of the guys on the phone. They responded close to the food court area. And when he spotted the cops, he took a hard right to try to get away. He didn't want to walk toward their path. So he took a hard right to try to get away. And then I knew, man, this guy is up to no good. This joker is gonna do something not, not good. And if he would put his hands down, I have to tell you, if he had went in his pockets or done anything, it wouldn't have been a good day for him because okay. I, I knew it was no good. So he, he sidestepped the police officers who were in uniform, went down um, through the baggage claim area. He actually went down on the escalator and tried to go out the airport. So when Orlando PD tried to stop him, um, an alarm went off uh, that they had found explosives, explosive devices in his bag. So he had checked a bag with bomb making components in his bag. Um, That was a really interesting case. We caught him quick. Orlando PD, of course, you know, they took him outside, spread eagle. They had to get the bomb squad out there. That was about a five and a half hour delay for everybody at the airport. But it was amazing that the talent that we were able to pick this guy up just in his mannerisms and the way that he was dressing within seconds of walking into the airport. And that's how good we can be if we're allowed to do our real job. That's what we want to do every day.
1: Okay. How does your interaction with TSA work? You mentioned you were under TSA, which has got to be kind of a frustration when you see they have a, obviously a very different candidate pool and a, a different skill set. Let's just leave it at that. How hard is it to work there?
2: You know, it's really, it's really tough because they're an administrative agency. We're law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, we do not do the same things. I know that they're one layer of TSA security. They said that we're the final layer of security. I think we, we should not be within that airport screening environment. A lot of the administrative policies that TSA and the Office of Chief Counsel want to push down throughout TSA to the screeners, obviously affect the air marshals. They don't ever think about us being the gun toters or how policies are going to affect us. We are an afterthought. We're never in the forethought. If you can believe that, we are the, we are the very last within TSA to have any type of consideration for input on how to make our job better, Increased ways that we can try to beat the bad guys, better surveillance, better equipment that we may need. I mean, hell, man, we just got body armor this year. Can you believe that?
1: This is like the ultra low biz type stuff. Within, within within the two or last something.
2: twelve months, we finally got body armor. It took twenty-two years to get body armor. Something's not right with that picture. It
1: sounds like a federal agency. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, that's 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 probably not a unique experience. When I was working surveillance and, and they'd had that, you know, they've had low visibility surveillance for a very long time with the Bureau. And I saw it come out in 2020, maybe 2021, something like wow. that, was getting the same sort of thing where they were catching these, these really paper thin type uh, body armor. And obviously it's not going to stop a rifle or anything like that. But if you're going to be in the environment where there could be a real threat and somebody might want to come after you, it's. I'd rather have something than nothing i'm sure you guys feel the same way
2: well i mean we're watching these billions of dollars being bought for puffer, puffer machines in the airport where they're supposed to puff your shoes and they're supposed to pick up particles of a bomb i've never i they're they're all stacked up somewhere in a closet right sure. i mean and then the other thing i i learned that i just got to tell you about with tsa it's really not about national security it's about contracts it's getting billions of dollars for these equi- this equipment, these scanning equipments, all these, the latest and the greatest. Um, they've gotten away from everything, but what they should be doing is getting in people's pockets, talking to people, researching who those people are coming through the airport. We're not allowed to do that. You know, air marshals, we don't even have access to a manifest, I can't even tell you who's on the airplane flying with me.
1: Whoa.
2: No, not allowed. Got a top secret clearance, you cannot look at the manifest, you're not trusted to look at that passenger manifest. So appropriately, yeah,
1: is that coming through the airlines pushing back TSA. and saying they don't want to share? No, it's TSA. Oh, that's unbelievable.
2: Mm-hmm. They did. They no, no access to the manifest. As a matter of fact, Kyle, if I need to run someone through NCIC, FCIC, I have yeah. to call headquarters because they don't even give me that ability to do that on my own in the field.
1: You know, they make that available on the phone. We used to. We finally started getting that out on the surveillance teams, and it was one of those upgrades that uh, I think made a big difference. But
2: uh, not allowed. Well, you, nope. You, air, air marshals aren't allowed. Nope. You,
1: And air marshals are about as autonomous as anybody in in the same way that uh, my old unit was. It's not like you're, you're hanging out, you're, you're remote all the time. Everywhere you go is going to be remote because you're always, you're not in an office. Your, your only job is in the field.
2: You're not allowed, not allowed. You're not trusted. They treat us like we're, um, I, am not really sure what they treat us like. A redheaded stepchild. I do, I do think, um, we get left out in, in the rain all the time with TSA um, they, they say that they build these advisory councils and they want to hear what the air marshals have to say, but they don't, they don't listen to anything, any suggestions that we give, they don't listen to them.
1: It's, it's one of the strangest things, because I would say that of all the, uh, the dislike, and there's plenty of dislike for feds of all varieties for various reasons and constitutional reasons and people who don't like their business, uh, infringed on I would say that the air marshals probably have the least amount of hatred in in the online space or of kind of just the general awareness of the public. I don't think you could ever say it where somebody would be like, yeah, I really hate the air marshals. They may hate almost anybody else, ATF, DEA, FBI, all these other three-letter agencies, uh, but FAM doesn't really ever pop up on there as, as someone they have dislike for, I think. Did you ever feel anybody have animosity towards you for being an air marshal?
2: Not really. Not not unless somebody didn't get a seat that they, they wanted to book or something, you know, that's on, on an off comment. <laughs> it's never personally or about the job that we're doing. I mean, most people are very gracious to us. They would give their seat up. I mean they they're very gracious um, in regards to not forgetting about 9-11. But I have to tell you TSA has forgotten about 9-11. We're not looking for the bad guys anymore. We're looking for contracts and money, and we're looking to, to fund billions of dollars through these private corporations um, through TSA. That's It'd be interesting around. to see how many
1: people came out of TSA, DHS in general, went over to places like Lidos and some of these other scanning companies that make the big equipment. I'm, I'm confident it's there, right? And It's gotta be.
2: Well, you'd have to look at our current administrator, David Pekoski, TSA uh, David Pekoski. He came from a, a private group um, that was uh, that manufactured equipment. And he left a $650,000 a year job to come to TSA and make about $195.
1: Ain't that so, something?
2: Uh, yeah, I always had that little light bulb that went off and I said, now, why would he do that? But yeah. as I've grown uh, more wiser in my TSA affirmations now, it's because of the contracts.
1: So you're yeah, you're an astute observer of things. What do you think about Chris Ray? He made nine point two million dollars the year became before he became the FBI Director. Why would he take a ten year post making two hundred grand a year, you think?
2: Oh, you know exactly why. It's about control. <laughs> it's about control and moving the money, brother. It's moving yeah. that money, moving that cash that that check that's never going to run out. The federal government is fitting the bill. Taxpayers are we are. You are. Phil is. We're all fitting the bill. We are. They, they know no bounds, though. Do you know that there's nobody accountable? This is what I'm realizing coming forward as a whistleblower for the last couple of years is no matter where we go, I don't see anybody fired or in jail.
1: That's right. Yeah. Who investigates the FAMS if you make an allegation that something is going wrong at TSA? Is there oh, a OIG? The,
2: there's a well, there's DHSOIG, uh, Joseph Kafuri um we've filed probably 30 complaints we've never heard from him i don't even know where the guy's at i mean he he's got his own issues from what i hear i've been doing a little research on him seems like he stepped in some hot water himself but Hmm. usually dhsoig will kick it down to our internal affairs uh tsa has their office of investigations their ooi and of course you they're never going to find any wrongdoing on their own you know something how is that
1: how do they how do they manage to handle never finding any wrongdoing internally? How come no one's ever done anything wrong that works for the federal government once it, the allegation has been made?
2: And, and, and guess what? It's amazing because we'll make an allegation. And the next thing I know it somebody's moving up to a special agent in charge. They actually got a promotion. Yeah. Yeah. So the more people they beat down in the field, the more rights they violate, the more illegal activities they promote, the more national database computer systems they manipulate and put false information in. These guys are moving up. It's like the 9-11 Boys Club.
1: Yeah, it really is. It's uh so folks who are familiar with this podcast, or you if you're a new listener, you go back and listen. This is this is the standard when it comes to federal service. What we find is that uh, screw up and move up is kind of the way it works. They, they, we say it a little bit less uh, friendly when we're not on the show here, but uh, that's just the nature of the beast. It turns out to be pretty common across all federal agencies, uh, law enforcement and otherwise. So that's kind of gross. There's another kind of special thing. And I, I remember asking one of my buddies about it. And um, I'd love for you to kind of remind me of it because it's somewhere in the back of my brain, but I can't remember the details. Uh, when you guys fly overseas, because there are some times when you want to be uh, in Western Europe or something to that effect or in the Middle East. And there's somebody that needs to be shadowed on in something like that. Um, are you able to carry a weapon on, on those flights too, internationally and kind of, how does that play out?
2: Well, we can carry it. We can carry a firearm on any American carrier. If it's got an American flag on it, we can carry it no matter where they fly, no matter what country that they're in, we go over 200 countries. The issue is, is when we land though, we have to turn our weapons in. So we will be in country unarmed, which is can be quite scary if you know the places that we travel to. Um, So that that is that is very concerning when you're on an international mission and you are on the ground for a couple of days after after you've landed that you know you are unarmed and you have to really be careful because not everybody in other countries like us
1: and you're not just flying to like Fiji or Kyoto or something really fun to to go see there's some gnarly places you guys end up as well
2: very gnarly there's yeah there's some very gnarly places that we go to uh the Philippines you know Taipei Taiwan there's a lot of places that we go a lot of these places are are um could be classified as extremely dangerous um and we go there i mean and in- you're hanging
1: out on you hang out on the local economy for a little bit and then uh, turn around and catch a flight back
2: we have to be really careful. Yes, we we can we hang out, but you know, being Americans in some of these locations, you are a target. Whether sure. they, they don't know if you're law enforcement or not, it doesn't really matter. You're still a target if you're an American. So we try to stay in groups. We try to travel together and let he, you know do the buddy system. We're back at the hotel. Everybody's good for the night. Nobody's leaving. See you at whatever time we get up to to meet at the hotel in the morning to go to the airport.
1: I dig it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to give people kind of a scope of the surveillance mission and maybe, uh, the types of subjects that you guys generally would, would find. And then obviously the reason you're here is because that has changed dramatically over the last little bit. And, uh, and that is a problem for you. It's a problem for me. Uh, I saw the same thing. So maybe kind of tell us historically what the mission set of the, the fam surveillance looked like and, and, you know, what, what kind of briefing you'd get and then, and then how you go about uh, following people.
2: Well, in, in the beginning. When we first started and we work closely with the FBI, we would get what we were called special mission coverage. You know, we just did a a lot of the flights that we do. They're not even risk based. They they have been deemed by DHS OIG as we have a subject matter expert in headquarters who picks our routes. Now, this is not based on intelligence or risk. None None of what we do every day is not intelligence or risk based. It's throwing a a bullseye on the wall and saying, am I going to get, you know, throwing my dart? Am I going to get a bullseye today or not? Um,
1: They're just, they're just um, what we'd call like throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks up
2: there. That's it, man. You're just, you're just riding to see what, what happens that day. Um, It's, it's incredibly crazy. In the beginning, before we went to TSA, we worked with the FBI closely and we would have like special mission coverages. And those are full briefings to where you know you've got to you got to be in a secure location to even review the paperwork located to the subjects that you're following and then you had actual after action reports and and things that were important for a case agent to have to know about these individuals movements right who are they traveling with Uh, the real stuff and these were real bad guys these weren't a 17 year old cheerleader these weren't you know a nine-year-old child that we're doing following six-year-old kids um, yeah. Unaccompanied minors were following them on the aircraft without any of their parents ever knowing that their children are being followed by federal air marshals. It's just not appropriate. So in the beginning, we did have full great investigative things that were going on. And now the quality of that has gone. It's plummeted to negative, negative zero.
1: One of the, uh, one of the things that I've kind of observed, and, I, and I'd like to ping this off you and see if it makes sense. I think, have sort of, you know, I was outside the the federal service for a while, I was in the in the military, but and what it looked like is that we identified that there were foreign terrorists, uh, international terrorist subjects that were a problem to the United States in the beginning, Uh, you know, right after 9-11, and that went on for maybe up to 10 years. And somewhere in the middle of that, they ran out of the foreign terrorists because those guys were busy fighting our military overseas. And we moved into the uh, the HVE territory, the homegrown violent extremists. And so just so people know what that term means, it's it's going to be people that have a foreign ideology, but they are domestically based. They're, they're out of the United States or they're US citizens or um, legal permanent residents. And then once we started looking inside of our own house, then it became possible for law enforcement to look at what we're calling domestic terrorists now or domestic violent extremists and so that became the sort of white supremacy and the anti-government types and now pro-life extremists did you see the same sort of uh, movement uh, that the FBI was doing was that following and tracking in the fams is what they were asking you to track
2: yes it is yes yes it was and you know it's not like we don't want those bad people off the street right if somebody's doing something if they're a white supremacist and they're they're a true domestic terrorist Please let's get them, let's get it, let's get an, uh, an investigation going. Let's get some evidence and let's take them off the street. Mm-hmm. Let's don't let them go out here and just hang out and run around for year after year after year and you're not doing anything with them. I mean, if you really think that they're a problem, you've got to go in there and try to tackle that. But what we have seen in the last two years since January the 6th, since, you know, what happened to January the 6th, it's something like that I would have never dreamed I would see this in my country in my entire life. Uh, it's a violation <laughs> yeah. of the First Amendment.
1: Yeah, it's- let's get into that because that's your, that's the substance of your of your most recent whistleblowing yeah. thing. That's what's kind of put you on the circuit uh, with Dan, and I know you were on uh, Seb Gorka's show recently as well. Um, we got a lot more time to kind of flesh it out. Let's let's talk about sort of um, what allegations you made and to whom, and then obviously you you know and I know that you got to go public if you want anybody to hear about it because right. the federal government doesn't care what you say. Um, let, let's get into the substance of that. So maybe the the concrete allegation, and then we can expand on it.
2: Okay, so we. With the Air Marshal National Council, we have a large base membership. We have members in all twenty field offices, air marshals in in the field offices, and also at headquarters. We received information around January the eleventh um, that the FBI had requested manifest, a flight manifest, for everybody that had flown into the National Capital Region from around January the fourth to like this around the seventh. So everybody, everybody, didn't matter who it was, they just wanted the entire manifest. It so TSA, we do that. They've got they got the manifest, they got the flight schedules and they provided it to the FBI. But what they did on the other end is they took that same list and they ingested it into the TSA national database. And whoever ingested that list put in the category of what the um, crime was that those people entered the Capitol. So they actually put on the special mission that this person is a suspected 102, which is a domestic terrorist, and that they entered the Capitol. So we just created our own internal domestic terrorist database with no evidence. There's no criteria on why we're following these people. There's no follow-up investigation. Nobody's interviewing them. Um, We're not interviewing, we're not following other people that are concerned to me, which would be Antifa. Black Lives Matter. We're not following any of those groups for any reason. I'm not making this where it's us against them. We should be following all bad guys if they're bad yeah. guys.
1: I mean, that's the, that's the basics of it, right? We, if you commit a crime, your your concrete allegation here, and I'm going to just rephrase it because I think it's I think it's mind blowing to people. And if they hadn't catch any of those other shows we talked about, you're saying that. TSA ingested a list that was requested by the FBI of every single person that flew into the national capital region, which probably includes uh, Baltimore, it includes Dulles and Reagan, and any any flights into that area between January 4th, you said, and maybe the 7th of 2021, those people all got fed into us. Every single person that was on a plane that flew in got fed into a list as a potential domestic terrorist, and then now is potentially being watched by TSA and by, that is, by the that,
2: is, that is correct. That
1: is, that is a crazy number of people and, and, and no more further allegations. What we would call NFI in the, in the, uh, intelligence world, that no further information about them needed to be uh, added.
2: Zero. We're, we're, we're following these folks. They're not even asking for after action reports. There's no documentation. There's, there's nothing that TSA wants. They just want to make this special mission. Like it's a big special mission and it's not. And there's no criteria. There's no criteria on these people uh, that we're following. I mean, we've had air marshals, and I've told you about this one situation where there's an air marshal, his wife actually attended the ellipse on January the 6th to listen to President Trump's speech. Yep. She's disabled, she couldn't have walked to the Capitol if she'd wanted to, okay? Uh, she just couldn't have made that journey. She went back after the, her after the speech, she took a Uber back to her hotel room. And she's got some some pictures of where she was there at the ellipse. But she is actually a suspected domestic terrorist on this list, and they have the categories that she entered the capitol. I mean, they they falsified information on this lady.
1: And what can that information be used for other than surveillance purposes?
2: You know we 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 think um there's so many different angles or you know tentacles that the government has. We think a lot of it is they want to placate Congress and say, look how many domestic terrorists we followed from January the 6th. They want to inflate the metrics, inflate the numbers. They want to make this concierge type surveillance versus evidence-based surveillance, right? We want to go and focus on a group because someone in the swamp has asked us to do that. And we know that we want them to give us the purse strings. So we're going to do what those individuals have asked us to do, but we're not going to do any follow-up. We're not going to have any evidence on these folks. We're not gonna interview them. We're not gonna go back and work with the FBI to say, hey, can we finally take um, this lady off the list that we have followed now for two, going over two plus years and we've broken down hundreds of missions to follow one person. We've broken down critical international missions to follow this air marshal's wife. We had international missions to Germany. We dismantled those missions because the agency wanted her watched. TSA wanted her watch, so we broke those critical missions down, and they're doing it every day. They're breaking missions down to follow these folks that were on, I don't even say January Sixers, that were just in the National Capital Region, to include children.
1: That is such a wild thing to do, um, and, and it's also interesting that you're attributing it to the same reasons that uh, I think Phil and I have identified with a number of other people coming on and talking about it all comes down to money. It comes down to congressional funding. It comes down to, you know, just getting that budget line item saying, we've done this number of missions, so we need this much money. And and then we're gonna do this many missions the next year. And the missions are not relevant that they have any outcome. They don't have to produce any results. They just have to show up and have people, you know, check that box of, we had a number of 600 and we actually got 681, so we need more money. That kind of thing, right?
2: That's exactly what's happened They're They're inflating the metrics and they're violating people's rights. I mean, you know, the government's always, you know, wonderful for overflating everything that they do that we're so successful. We're so successful. TSAs, you know, they talk about how successful they are, but every time you turn around, turn around, they're failing a red team test at the airport. You know, there is no real successes in TSA. There's a lot of failures, but I explain
1: what a red team is, if you don't mind for folks. that well, A red
2: team is where somebody will come into the airport and you won't know who they are and they're undercover and they'll try to get an item through security, like a a, a mock weapon or some, a, a mock bomb. And they'll try to get those through the airport. TSA fails those at over 95% when they happen.
1: Total illusion of safety. I, I, I tell people
2: that. Security theater, man. It's security theater. And that's what's really going to hurt folks like me, you, Phil, and our families, is that we expect them to be able to travel and travel safely. But at the end of the day, it's not about any of that. It's about inflating numbers, bonuses, Um, TSA had some of the highest paid bonuses. I don't know. I thought it was very unusual to see supervisors during COVID who were teleworking at the SES level, sitting at home, but raking in a $25,000 performance bonus. Say
1: that one more time. I think people need to hear that. And it's the same story in the Bureau that you're not saying it's crazy to me.
2: Yep. Senior executive service. They telecommuted for almost two years. Many of these guys telecommuted for almost two years. Didn't come to the office, were unaccountable, never got on a Zoom call to brief their guys, Never, never nobody even saw their face for years. They were raking in twenty-five dollars a year for a performance bonus on top of their $195,000 salary.
1: So SES salaries go SES one, two, and three, as I understand, and that tops out at about two thirty-five or $240,000 a year. So that plus a 10% performance bonus for maybe sitting at home, being drunk for all we know, they could have been sitting there drinking Bud Light, right?
2: They, you could even get them on the phone. Who knows where they were at? They could have been, they could have been on, you know, who knows? And they could I think, have been on a cruise. They, well, they were, we did bus one that said he was here. We, yes, we had him removed last year. Believe it or not, that was one good case. He, he was supposed to be in an area for telework and he was taking these luxurious cruises. Um,
1: I didn't I didn't even know. I just threw that out as an option. Yeah, that was,
2: it, it was meant to be. Of course somebody was. Yeah, but there was one last year. He was doing that. He was cruising all over the world um, on the government dime, getting paid a full salary and still taking money from the government and cruising on cruise ships. So it's funny you said that. That reminded me of that case. But sure. During COVID, and we'll talk, I don't want to go too deep, but I want to tell you something about COVID. The air marshals were directed to fly during COVID when they had COVID. So air marshals were positive for COVID. Their supervisors knew they were positive for COVID, or they had symptoms that were totally COVID related, and they told them to get on the plane anyway. It didn't matter.
1: Why was that, you think?
2: um, They wanted to keep their flight numbers up because they need to get their bonus, their metrics for bonus. So when you fly, the more you fly, the more money you get. So even putting the public at risk and a health risk that way, They said, you're going to fly. You're still going to fly. Now, they're telecommuting to work because they said it's too dangerous to come into the office. That's right. They don't want to catch COVID. But they're going to send COVID-positive air marshals on aircraft with people knowing the potential for them to be infected.
1: Now, we just talked about the the skill set and kind of honing a craft, being able to shoot in a linear environment. People have been in an aircraft. So I just want folks to imagine that you're looking basically at the tops of heads and down an aisle. And when you can see sort of the uh, flight attendant, that's kind of what your picture might be of someone who's actually trying to get into a cockpit. That's what you can look at when you lean out in the aisle and take a look. And you're taking people that are feeling like
2: after the speech, she,
1: you know, Uber back to her
2: hotel room and she's got some some pictures where she was there it,
1: the combat effectiveness of that of that uh that disease it it knocked me on my butt for a couple of days you know like i can't imagine that you're very effective sitting with a gun on a uh, on an aircraft while you're you know sweating your face off and and uh, you know get the chills and the shivers and all that kind of thing going on
2: well these were entire teams that were sick Kyle the entire team not just one of course so when you think about now, you know how exhausted COVID will make you. It really depletes you. It's very hard to think you're discombobulated in your in your thought process, or at least I was when I got it. It was very difficult to hold a train of thought. Now, try imagine running a 9-11 style uh, deployment where you've got real bad guys on the plane and you've got your air marshal teams that are sick from COVID. Now, you really think they're going to be on, on the money that day? You think they're going to be able to get up and do it? I don't want to take a chance like that. It's not. No.
1: And you're, and now you're mixing weapons in with people that are ineffective. That's the other thing I always worried about. It's like, if you don't feel good, that's why you don't carry a gun to a bar. It's not so much that you might, uh, use it ineffectively. It's that you are now not responsible and you have a weapon that that's loose potentially. And that, and that becomes a real, a real hazard. So now you've introduced however many weapons on any given team with sick people. That's craziness. I've never heard that before. I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. It's just awful.
2: It's been a it's been a really uh, different two years for the air marshals. I have to tell you, it's and the craziest continues. It's not it's not like it was just a lull or a one time thing. The cra- we're it's getting more and more crazy within the Federal Air Marshal Service. Um, every 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 day, every situation. It I would have never dreamed I would be here talking to you or talking in public about the things that that we're seeing behind the scenes. But the country needs to know what type of shape we're in, and we're not in good shape. We. Our ability to thwart another 9-11 is diminishing greatly. It's, it's, it's very, it's diminishing greatly every day.
1: Well, yeah. And let's talk about why, because I imagine that you had no interest in, you know, when we we were on the phone, you kind of shared with me that you didn't have any interest in being a public figure, but you don't really have a choice in a lot of ways. And I I had the same experience. So maybe kind of share with people what spurred you to come talk. Can the other air marshals that are in the service currently, can they speak? Or is it just because you're retired?
2: I'm retired. I'm they I'm their, their sacrificial lamb so to speak. I'll come out here and say it because they can't touch me on the outside, right? I'm retired. They can't take my badge, my creds. They can't take my retirement. Um, guys that are still on the inside, they can hurt them and they can they can touch them really bad. Uh, you know you've experienced some of those difficulties and challenges with your agency. So I'm the pipeline. I get the information fresh from the field. These aren't things that I'm out there seeing or doing. I'm getting these guys I'm getting this information from my guys every day. My phone blows up all day every day. There's so many issues and so many problems within TSA. We have to triage this from what's the worst to what what's minor. But right now we're probably pretty much at the worst when we're endangering people in the public with the health risk when we know that we're sick with COVID, when we're intentionally violating people's first amendment rights. I mean how much worse could it get? I mean, what worse could we do, um, than what we've already done?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of mind blowing. How is morale for the, the fans in general, if you have a sense of that, and maybe how many, how many fans does the national council represent?
2: Oh, we have, I'm not going to tell that number, but we, we got a lot. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. We're on all 20. I don't want to give them any ideas there, but you know, it's strange because most guys are, you know, they've been here since the beginning. They've been here since two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in, they're in for this for the long haul. Um, morale can be up and down right now. It's not good at all. Uh, most days we've got most air marshals walking around in the airport. They're not, they're not flying most days now. We go through these peaks and valleys where we get an, a direct, a director like Terrell Stevenson, who's the current director, who wants to make a business decision to keep the air marshals on the ground. Now this is business to him because he saves money from per diem and overnights. So if he just puts them in the airport and they walk around, then he can classify that as it was a standby day or a recovery day. So he gets credit for a a flight, which they never took, but he can inflate the numbers to Congress.
1: Oh, good. You had Phil uh, smirking over there. Phil, uh, obviously a veteran of (laughs) <laughs> much government uh, shenanigans. And that falls right into the kind of the categories that we'd expect from these kind of guys, uh, people that are looking out for their bottom line and making sure that they crush the metrics without crushing the mission. You indicated that, uh, that we're less safe now that we're having a diminishing capability. When was America probably at its peak capabilities with the TSA doing the job as close to what they're supposed to do and the fam's doing the thing they needed to do when everybody had the right kind of marching orders, ROEs and, and that kind of thing. what, what, what is there a time frame that you think was
2: uh, our, 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 our glorious days were when we were part of ICE, when we started in the beginning, you know, we were FAA and then we went over to ICE. I think our capabilities during that time were the strongest because working with ICE, you know, they're, they're federal law enforcement, we could actually do teamwork together as law enforcement. We could surveil and, and do actual casework on really, really bad guys from one airport to the other or one country to the other. Mm-hmm. Right? We could we could have these, you know, international investigations with us being involved because we didn't have to get clearance from TSA. Now, uh, since they took us out of uh, another federal law enforcement agency and they've put us into TSA, federal law enforcement is not gonna go through TSA for permission on surveillance and on cases, true cases. They'll, They'll take a request from the swamp to surveil people, but true law enforcement is not gonna go through the bureaucratic tape to get our assistance. So we're not being utilized anywhere near the value of what we could be.
1: What are some of the things that could be done to uh, to kind of correct this in a, in a short order? Are there any kind of like, you know, uh, magic bullets that would that would solve these problems, Policy there, and procedures?
2: There are. We're, wor- we're working on legislation right now. We're going to propose a bill to move the air marshals out of TSA and try to go over to Homeland Security Investigations. Mm-hmm. It seems like the best fit for us. We're the only air marshal program in the world um, that is inside of an administrative agency. The Royal Committee of Mounted Police uh, in Germany, Great Britain. Nobody does the air marshal program the way that we do it. They're all c- certified inside of a law enforcement group. And then that way you've got consistency with your investigations. You've got the ability to surge. Like right now we have no ability to surge. If there was another 9-11 style attack and we needed to pull air marshals in, that means we have to hire them. You know how long it takes to hire, get somebody trained and give them the Rolodex they need to go up in the air to take care of a, of a situation that could occur? It I takes it a long time, but if we're in a law enforcement group, right. And we cross train, we have the ability to surge anytime that we want. So we keep, you know, some HSI guys, uh, cross train with aviation component with the air marshals. And we think we'll be a blended team that can have an international reach. That's incredible.
1: It makes sense. Is there any appetite to do that? Is there uh, members of Congress that are championing this kind of, yes,
2: they are. You yes. want to
1: name any of them? Because I know folks, folks like the you know the opportunity to be able to write to people. They like the idea of being able to take some action. Oftentimes, it's people always saying like, "Hey, I want to do something, but what can I do?" This is a concrete thing you could write and say it's a, it's a better.
2: Yep. We've got quite we've got a, quite a few committees, oversight committees that we're looking that we're working with. But uh, Congressman Tim Burchett, out of Tennessee, is he's offered to sponsor the bill, and we're writing a draft legislation now. Um, we've got a lot of support from Senator Ted Cruz. Who's trying to nail down a lot of this stuff that's going on in regards to this backlash from January 6th and what we're doing? Uh, Chairman Mark Green, House Homeland, great guys. These, you know, these guys, these are the guys that are in Congress for the right reasons. People always say, oh, well, congr- Congress, what are they gonna do? We have some representatives there that are up there for the right reason. And God bless these men, because I can tell you those men are doing what's right, and they're trying to do what's right for the federal air marshals too.
1: Are there any uh, on the left that are interested in this, or is this just a Republican thing or is it a bipartisan?
2: Oh, we hope it's bipartisan because national security should not be Republican or Democrat. Unfortunately, at this point, we haven't got too many Democrat supporters right now. Um, I don't know if it's because we're law enforcement are we gun toters. Are we in that defund the police state in this world to where it's not okay to support your law enforcement? If you're, you know, on the democratic side, I, I don't know how else to explain it that way. I mean, what else could it be that nobody can see the value in what we're trying to say that they wouldn't support, but then again, too, we haven't heard from them.
1: Yeah. It's just like that Stat- Sadly, I feel like, uh, as we mentioned earlier that, you know, fans are kind of the one that nobody really gets rowdy about having on their team. Nobody seems mad about it. I don't think there's any animosity that I've ever heard. I've really never heard of anybody and getting upset about it. I want to um, be respectful of your time because I know you said you got something coming up in just a few. Let me run one scenario by. Okay. I uh, I recently flew to El Paso, and obviously I've upset the federal government in the way that I've done it. What do you think the odds are that I had a team on me? Because I I did some uh, surveillance for a couple years. I've got I've got a pretty good eyes for that kind of thing. What are the odds that somebody would surveil someone like me uh, without any particular you know um, real case to be able to generate, other than I pissed off the wrong people.
2: From a one out of ten, you'd be eleven. Yeah, would had been eleven, and not only going but coming. Listen, don't think it. it's both. When you fly, it's every route you go on, going and coming. It's going to. Well, happen. if you got into
1: a U-Haul and drove behind me, then they could do that because that was a that was a rough twelve hours by myself. They, if they wanted to go do that, I, I say God bless them. But uh, yeah, I, I asked the same question of uh, Dan Bongino. I hit him up when when you were uh, sort of sharing the original story, uh, or at least the first time I heard about it. And uh, I said, "What do you think the odds are?" There was a team on me. He goes, "About ninety nine percent."
2: Oh, there's no doubt in my mind, Kyle. There's there's no doubt in my mind. They're gonna keep keep their eye on you really close.
1: It's so funny. Uh, they should do better because I am pretty confident. I could have gone up and given those guys a hug and told them, "Hey, I'm not mad at you for what you're doing. I know you gotta check the box, and then it doesn't go anywhere, right?" Like they're they gonna write oh, up a report. It,
2: they don't like listen. They don't like doing what we're doing. You know, we're follow, We are following federal law enforcement. I just want to let you know. We have to brief. We're following persons of interest who are armed federal agents. They're a person of interest. We have to do, and you know this, we have to do a law enforcement briefing with anybody that's got a gun on an aircraft. So the FAMs can't tell the uh, federal agent that they're the person of interest, but they're the person of interest that they're briefing with. So this is the subject they're watching. And this is an armed federal agent that we're following around and watching
1: that's incredible. That actually is the craziest thing that I've heard yet that you've got you've got feds that are watching feds and they're they have to brief each other. So so people understand there's a deconfliction that happens as as federal agents get on the the aircraft. And Phil knows this as well as anybody. You know, you go in and you check in at the desk. It's funny because I know what to look for. Right. So I got there early enough that uh, they must have gotten there really early and I'm sure they did. And the guys that were following me, you know, they never went and did the desk check in, but I, I recognize how people stand. I know how they dress. Um, I, I did it. And then my other favorite thing was, is I got moved into a seat. Uh, because it was a, it was only a half full aircraft and they put me at the front of the coach. It didn't upgrade anything for me. I'm not a frequent flyer on American, but they moved me up to the front right behind first class. So I was in a way that I could be looked at and I was up on the right-hand side and I generally sit on the left and I know most righties sit on the left side. So it's just like, I saw these guys get in and I did three possibles and then two probables when we got off. And then I went and ditched them because, uh, I'm kind of good at what I used to do too. So I went and got a coffee and, and hid in a corner and watched them go looking frantically around the airport. It's, it's always Interesting when someone goes down to the baggage claim and then 15 minutes later they're swimming upstream going back towards the security checkpoint because they lost me you think yeah, yeah. That, look guys I, I did this for a living i could slip you if i really want to uh, but it is funny
2: it, there's no there's no doubt kyle that that you've got a i'm sure you got a big bullseye on your back right now with what you're doing and thank you so much for coming out and telling your story because you help other whistleblowers like me get a platform um, that Americans really need to know what's going on behind the scenes. So I want to say thank you for that.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. This is, uh, this is the fun things where we get to talk to cool people that, that are willing to come out and tell the truth, uh, tell people where they can follow you, where they can get involved if they want to support the organization, if there's a donation base or if there's, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, additional social media that you want to kind of refer, just pump any of those things if you like.
2: Yeah, we're, we're, we're at the Air Marshal National Council. You can find us at airmarshallnc.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram hit us up, please follow us, like us, let us give us some feedback, let us know some more things that you want to hear about, because we have hundreds and hundreds of stories regarding what's going on behind the scenes at at TSA. we got to pull that security theater curtain back, and we want everybody to look to see what's behind that screen.
1: If there are uh, air marshals that are not part of your organization, they can join it there. Is that correct?
2: Yep, they can join it there. Our phone numbers listed. A lot of times, you'll go straight to 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 myself or one of the other people. Dave Londo's our president. Ben Drozek's our vice president. Uh, all air marshals. We we all know what the deal is. We know what they're going through, so they can hit us up and join. We'd love to have them. Uh, we're always looking for new members.
1: And are you guys members of uh, FLEOA? Do you deal with them as well too? As a kind of well, a backup?
2: They're they're kind of a different breed. We're not members of Flio. We're part of the National Association of Police Organizations. They're in Napo. Very large group, 241,000 law enforcement officers. And okay. we're also, our legal defense is done through PORAC, um, Legal Defense Fund out in California. So, yeah, we're not we're not with FLIOA. We have some FLIOA members, but they kind of do things a little different. We're more going to come out and do a one-two punch on folks when they're trying to mess with our members. We're not going to take that.
1: I appreciate that. Actually, I think the guy who I, I talked to at FLEO last, who was very nice but, and totally was on board with what I was saying and ended up doing nothing about it, but he was a retired fan too. So seemed like a really good guy. Well, but, I know
2: exactly uh, who you're talking about too. I shall not name him, but I know who you're talking about.
1: He, he's got kind of a country accent, does he not? He does. Hmm. Okay. Same guy. Uh, I had a nice chat with him. I enjoyed it. Uh, but once again, it was one of those things where I'm I'm an action guy, and I can tell that you're an action gal, and you're willing to come out and say stuff. So that's always really helpful, um, folks. Uh, I want you to follow her social media too. If you get a chance, you can see some of these things. You break some of these stories, and obviously, anywhere that you're making appearances, what is the uh, what's the Twitter handle that you like to run under?
2: Labasco Sonia.
1: Labasco Sonia. and a first uh, and last had- name inverted. Okay. We'll put that in the notes. I'm following you. So, um, I also, when I see something good come through, or if you want to alert me, by all means, you can always hit me up with the DM and I can boost the signal when it needs to be done. I'm happy to do that. And, uh, folks, this is, uh, this is what we're all about here. We're just about exposing all the malfeasance. There's a lot of it, unfortunately. And, and even in the the places where you don't hear anything bad, then and, and I was as shocked as anybody to hear it. Cause like I said, I I've always had good, uh, Good feelings about the air marshals and they would have never jumped on the list of people that were following around j6ers but it doesn't surprise me now anything and uh of course the best thing is, is that there's people in the agency that want to reach out and, and fight with it and i'm i'm glad you're going to be the uh, lightning rod just like i am for these kind of things
2: hey anything for my country man it is what it is We've
1: you said something up. You said something in our private conversation, and I wanted to get it just because I really like the way it sounded. You said you thought when you were going from local law enforcement to the feds, you were going from one speed to another speed. What were those speeds again?
2: Oh, my gosh, man. I thought I really thought I was making it here over, over at the fams. I'm like, I'm going from a local cop to the feds. And it was like, man, low speed, high drag. But I got over here and it's just the opposite. It's low speed, low drag. Um, I, I say Sheryl Crow, her song, It's My Favorite Mistake. That's That was my favorite mistake. And getting involved with the feds, man, I was really good at the lo- at the local level too. So, um, I did that for my country, and I'm going to do this for my country. So, we we'll we'll make it work.
1: No, I hear it. There was some kind of funny little expression. I think you said you thought you were going from high speed to supersonic or something like that. And I thought, what a great what a great expression. Oh, I,
2: yeah, that's what I thought. Lord, Lord and mercy, was I not not right?
1: <laughs> it's how it goes. Well, it's, it's like, uh, Phil used to tell me, uh, when we were working together on the, on the job, he used to say, you know, this starts off as a passion. And then unfortunately it just slowly becomes a paycheck when the, uh, the grind of the bureaucracy kind of gets to you. And, and that is the nature of the beast. And, uh, you know, we all experience it doesn't matter the agency, it turns out. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Phil here real quick. He's going to read out. We've got a five-star review. I bet, uh, folks, if you want to check the links in our show notes, you'll be able to Put yours in there and, and we'll read one on the show like this one. This one was kind of wild. So Phil's going to send us one uh, full speed.
0: Yeah, this one's lengthy. So uh, hang with us, folks. Comes from Gunnar Sharp, who wrote, the show is riveting and it's really not a show. It's this hero's real life. Kyle Seraphin's ideals of the FBI met with the corrupt reality. He is among the few that one recognized the corruption and two did something about it. One good man versus the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world. If Kyle seems defensive or bitter, remember, this is all ongoing. You're getting the story in real time. It's raw and deeply researched at the same time, a rare combination of elements. Kyle's smart, funny, and sometimes appears to feel the threat of what he's doing. I trust Kyle and what he is saying tells me it's time to end the FBI as a matter of public safety. I also feel that Kyle's in real danger and needs protection, knows this and also knows he's on his own except for his audience. Thanks for the five-star review, Gunner. If you'd like your five-star review read here on the Kyle Serafin Show, put one in, and maybe yours will be next.
1: And we trust Sonia Labosco. We're so grateful that you spent some time with us today. Thanks for kind of pulling the the wool back on this one. And uh, folks, you can find us on Apple. You can find us on Spotify, iHeartRadio. If you're not watching, you can see it on Rumble anytime you like. Hit that subscribe button, throw a comment in there. If it's something uh, nice or interesting, or if it's a good question, we will forward that along and I'll see if uh, Sonia will uh, respond to it uh, as well. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Kyle Serafin Show, and we will catch you all on the next one on Wednesday.